2: Welcome back to the Metal Exchange. Justin and Chris here with you for another week. How are you doing, bud?
1: Really good. Uh, really good. I, um, I've i been looking forward to this episode for a while, as this has been something we've um, had in the works, and I was very uh, conflicted because um, we I told Andrew that we would wait until after the Islanders playoffs were over to have him on. So I was excited to have him on, but I wasn't too excited because the sooner he came on meant the sooner the Islanders were eliminated from the playoffs. So, um, you know, it it didn't go exactly the way I'd hoped, but um, got to watch, you know, three full series of of playoff hockey, and that was a blast. And and, uh, so, yeah, I'm excited to have, uh, have Mr. Andrew Gross on with us to talk about the the self-titled Blue Murder album. Um, Yeah, it's
2: it's the first Monday of the month, so it's Request Monday. And uh, we've been in touch with uh, Andrew for a while. He is not only a a writer for Newsday, which is a New York-based publication, and, and obviously a hockey and other sports reporter for many, many, many years, but he's also a hard rock and heavy metal fan. So the synergy was definitely there, and we look forward to talking with him about his Choice his his album of the week, which is the Blue Murder self titled album from 1989. So I've I've been looking forward to this for some time. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, but before we get there and have him on, have you heard anything new this week that you um, you know gravitated towards or anything you enjoyed?
1: I, I did want to mention that I finally got a chance to listen to the new Iron Maiden single, "The Writing on the Wall," and I enjoyed it a lot. I, I it continues to boggle my mind how people like can still listen to new Iron Maiden songs, just be like, Oh, you know, it's it's not great. And it's like, um, sorry, but they're not going to make, you know, power slave again. So just make (laughs) peace with it and move on. Like this is a very good song. Like, I, I, it's it's just crazy to me how some people just can't let it go that like it's not the '80s anymore, although it's about to be um, when we get to <laughs> join us. But um, you know, I, I I thought I mean I'm not a huge fan of everything Iron Maiden has done in, in the last uh, 20 or so years, um, kind of like the, the post Brave New World era or the or really just the since Bruce rejoined the band, um, but. I don't know. I think the song's really good. I haven't seen the video yet, but I heard it's pretty cool. Um, it's an, an animated, um, song. And, um, also, uh, it, it appears that, um, Eclipse will be releasing a new album, uh, later this year called, uh, Wired. And they, uh, released a single called Saturday Night Hallelujah, which if you're a fan of Eclipse, you will enjoy this. It's, you know, just catchy, poppy, fun, melodic metal. Um, good stuff. And, uh, and our, our friends at seven spires also have released another single called Lightbringer, which is, um, probably one of the most upbeat kind of fun seven spire songs. I've heard them do. I, this is a song I'm finding stuck in my head quite a bit. And, um, and the one other thing I wanted to mention was, um, a band that I know both of us are huge fans of the night flight orchestra. They are, Um, releasing another album by the end of this year, and it's going to be a sequel to their previous album, uh, Aromantic, and it's going to be called Aromantic 2. And they released a new single from that called Chardonnay Nights, which I guess you could listen to right after you're done with Saturday Night Hallelujah by Eclipse, and you've had yourself a nice little evening. (laughs) I uh, I have not heard the
2: Eclipse or the Night Flight Orchestra songs. Um, I'm actually going to listen to them as soon as we are finished today, because I am a fan of both bands, and um, I always love what they do, so I'm definitely looking forward to that. Another single that came out this week by a band called Cryptex, who I had mentioned um, at our year-end episode last year, they – are the closest thing I had heard to Sabotage since Sabotage, right? So who I've always thought Sabotage had this unique sound. Cryptex really did kind of encapsulate that on their last album. They just released a single called The Big Easy. It certainly has those, you know, I always describe them as Kai Hansen singing for Sabotage. That's what Cryptex was for me. They still have the same vocals, but this track was a little bit different. It actually reminded me of the progressive rock band, The Deer Hunter from Boston. I don't know if the whole album is going to be like this, but they've definitely kind of shifted gears, at least on this one song. It has a lot of brass. It has a lot of um, other percussion instruments. It's definitely different, but as a huge fan of the deer hunter, I really enjoyed the track. It was just different from the last album. So um, their new album, I believe is going to be coming out um, in the next couple of months. I believe October 8th is actually the uh, date of the release I am going to listen to that the day it comes out. I'm looking forward to it. And um, one other album that I kind of went back to this week, and it's something we need to cover in long form. I went back to Orphanland and I listened to Mabool, which was their 2004 release, if I'm not mistaken. They are one of the most underrated bands on the planet. They have got that Middle Eastern vibe on top of like that early Opeth vibe, uh, that early Opeth sound going on. I forgot how much I just love this particular album and they've released albums since then, but I always find myself gravitating back towards my just because it was my first exposure to the band. I think um, whenever you have a chance to see them live, they put on a great show. I recently saw them on 70,000 tons. Although I guess now that I think about it, it really wasn't, that recent it was over a year and a half ago which is scary but uh nonetheless i thought you
1: were going to say now that i think about it it wasn't that many tons yeah as if you had weighed weighed everyone (laughs) (laughs) maybe
2: it was closer to sixty nine thousand tons but it was uh always a good live band and that album is just kicks ass so that'll be fun um but let's uh let's get to the reason why we're here
1: And we are here with Andrew Gross. Andrew, welcome to the Metal Exchange. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, oh my God, guys. I, I can't tell
0: you how excited I am for this and, and how happy I am you guys uh, reached out. And, uh, you know, I, I, it, it's kind of, you know, through that whole Islander playoff run, this was, you know, sort of the one thing I was really, really looking forward to as soon as the season ended. So thanks a lot, and- guys.
2: Uh, we are absolutely happy to have you. And as the resident Rangers fan of the group and not having looked forward to the playoffs myself, this is my outlet. So I, I completely sympathize with you there. Um, and, and you know, part of the reason that we wanted to have you on was because you had um, suggested that we take a look at this Blue Murder self-titled album from 1989. And I have to be honest with you. Going into it, I didn't think that I had heard a note from these guys. Right. So it was very, very different because a lot of the stuff that we have talked about, either one or, in many cases, both of us have a real firm grasp of. So this was different for us.
0: You know, and it was funny after, because to me, I was like, oh, it's blue murder. You know, to me, it's like, you know, the the, the top of the playlist. And it, it, it only, in retrospect, did it strike me that, you know what? This album is really, really old, and maybe I am too at this point, you know, <laughs> that, that I'm thinking, oh, everybody knows about Blue Murder, where when in reality, the album comes out in 89, and the band kind of fades into obscurity, not not the players, but the band fades into obscurity really quickly.
2: And, and I think that's a big part of it, because again, on their own, they all have such rich histories, and I'm sure we'll delve a little bit deeper into that but this band releases an album in 1989. They release a follow-up effort that really just never kind of took off. And I think that was in 1993. And that's, been it for the last 30 plus years. Right, and
0: by the time they got to the second album, even though, uh, you know, two of the players, the drummer Carmine Apiece and the bassist Tony Franklin, they were kind of involved in the second album more as session guys. So, you know, the original band might have done about 70, 75% of the second album, but by the time the album came out, it was really John Sykes with two other guys really. And, yeah. and, 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 and and to me, the heart of the band was gone at that point.
2: Yeah. It was almost well, like this, a solo effort, uh, if you will, where it was, you know, kind of Sykes continuing the rest of his solo career, which, you know, he yeah. went on to a long and storied career, but this was almost a transition into that phase of it.
0: Yeah.
1: When this album came out, um, what was the reception like to, to your recollection? Um, like how did you hear about it, and what kind of did it? Was it on the radio? Was it on MTV? I mean, we were seven years old at the time, and <laughs> you yeah. like said we yeah. hadn't heard about it until you brought it to our attention. So um, you were there. What was uh, what was the scene like at the time?
0: Yeah, no, I, I was. Uh, me and my buddies were seniors at Syracuse uh, at the time, living in a house, and I, I gotta think what what probably happened is maybe we saw the uh, the video for Valley of the Kings. On uh, MTV, and and just you know, I mean, I I already you know, I, I people you say, oh, you're a drummer. I always say, no, I own a drum set. I can sit behind the kit and I can make noise. That doesn't make me a drummer, right? Um, but I I do always gravitate to drummers, and and, and I focus on them. And, and look, Carmine Apice is a legend, and 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 I had always loved everything he did, and, you know, he had done some wildly disparate work, you know, you, you talk about working with uh, uh, Jeff Beck, or, or you, you, you talk about working with Rod Stewart, uh, when I saw him in concert, it was at Madison Square Garden, he was drumming for Ozzy Osbourne, right, right. you know, so he he's kind of been all over the map, and I really loved him, and, and I also really love uh, his younger brother, uh, Vinnie Appice. You know, my my first concert was that Mob Rules tour with Black Sabbath. Apicy, you know, so seeing Dio and Vinnie Appice. You know, so I, I, and they have sort of similar, very hard style. So I, you know, as soon as I knew Carmine Appice was in a new band, I, I was all in. And plus, Tony Franklin at the time was was very, very big. And of course, John Sykes is. Coming out a white snake, and I'm like, you know, how could this not be amazing? And, and 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 my college buddy, you know, we we just wore it out. You know, it, it was it was on constant rotation.
2: It's it's kind of an early supergroup of sorts, right? Because you know, nowadays a lot of artists are kind of getting together and they're doing one-offs or or you know, special projects together. You see it all the time. Back then, you had your band, you recorded your album every year, you toured with it, and then you went on to your next thing. But this was the one of one of the first real supergroups that um, kind of came out with a release, and you know they would go on to tour with Bon Jovi on that first tour. You would think it would be the catalyst for just you know massive stardom, and it just never happened. And obviously, we'll get into the album in a little bit, but just with that backdrop, it seemed like the stars were aligning. It just never quite. The rocket never took off.
0: No, no. And it's, to me, I mean, to this day, it's still weird that this did not work. But, you know, having said that, you know, growing up, I never, to this day, I don't understand why the 79 Mets were not good with Willie Montanez at first base and Doug Flynn and Frank Tavares. You know, I still don't get, you know, Pete Falcone. How could that team <laughs> no, not no. have won, right? Right. Um, it, 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 yeah, it, there you go. <laughs> Chris shows me the black Mets cap. Um, but, you know, it, 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 if you listen to the interviews, uh, a lot of it seems to be uh, they, they don't feel they got the management support that uh, that, that they really thought they needed. Uh, I was reading something uh, from John Sykes where he said he felt like, and, and he stayed with the same record company, that he was with when he was in Whitesnake and he always felt like the record company wanted this to fail so he would run back and reunite with David Coverdale and right. they could sell that so you know it, it, if you listen to the guys they just don't feel they got the management support I, I you know does, to me sometimes that sounds like sour grapes sometimes things just don't click and just because I think this is a brilliant album you know that doesn't mean everyone thought this was a brilliant album.
2: Yeah, and and, and the White Snake influence was obviously there because Sykes wrote yeah. practically all the songs on that on that 1987 release. But by the same token, uh, you know this I get think goes in a little bit more of a, a a touch more bluesy, almost like a Led Zeppelin direction, at least to, to, yeah. to my uh, untrained ear. Um, and and for some reason. I'm curious. Did it did, was it was it getting radio play back then, or was it merely just um,
0: you know kind of an underground thing? I, I don't think it was underground. I mean, if you know back then, you know if you got your video on MTV, that that was you know where it was at, right? And look, for a time, you know they were pushing Valley of the King, and then they tried pushing Jelly Roll a, a little bit. Um, so yeah, it, it was getting played. They they got good supporting it. you know they were on good tours uh there there was another tour uh, they, they were out with uh, king's x on, on another tour um right. so you know they they were getting some uh you know some notoriety um but like i say it just didn't click in the u.s i i think you know when they went to japan I think they got a big response in Japan, but for, you know, the record sales just didn't really happen domestically.
2: And I guess that's what, by way of comparison, right? Because if you look at, like, I think this album charted, it was in the top 70 on the Billboard charts, you know, at its peak, which today is a very good number. But by then, you know, they were looking for, obviously with with the success of Whitesnake, they were clearly looking for a top 10 album. They just never quite achieved that status.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, you know, I think I've said this to you guys, you know, to me, the melancholy here is that it was, you know, it was a one-off. It turned out being a one-off. We never really got to see where they could have taken this band, you know. And and again, you know, at the time, 89 going into the, you know, the explosion of grunge, would would this band have exploded anyway, just because, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, quote-unquote popular music anymore. It's, you know, it's, to me, in in music, it's one of the great what-ifs, you know, the blue murder.
2: And if the, the album comes out a year and a half earlier. Does it catch on to that last wave of this glam hard rock thing that was really hitting so big in the mid-80s and kind of fizzling out by 1990-ish? That's the question,
0: at least in my eyes. Yeah, I mean, to me, uh, not that it's a, a straight comparable, but, you know, I, I think a year before Blue Murder comes out, I think it was, uh, you know, Right comes out with Operation Mindcrime about a year before, and that album absolutely blows up and Queensryche was able to build on that. Even through the right. grunge, you know, they come out with a bigger album. They, they come out with Empire, and they're on MTV, and, you know, they they took off. Whereas, to your point, Blue Murder comes out a year later, and they just, there's, there's no momentum at that point.
2: Yeah, it was almost as if everything changed between 87 and 89. Queensryche got in the album, Mindcrime comes out in 88, I'll Make No Bones About It. It's a top five album for me. I love that disc. Uh, I I could play the album uh, uh, every day and I would never get tired of it. This album comes out a year after that and it just, like we said, it never clicks. But with that, let's just kind of dive right into the album, right? Um, What are your thoughts on Riot? Because I have some real strong thoughts because something about that song jumped out right away and it kind of carried through the rest of the disc for me.
0: Yeah, no, No, uh, to me it embodies everything the band is about. I mean, it just previews everything you're going to hear over the next 50 minutes. To me, Riot is the quintessential Blue Murder song. I mean, you know, if they'd only written one song in their career, it would have been Riot. Uh, I, You know, to, to me, almost the worst part of the album, you know, when you know what's coming, is kind of that minute at the start where they kind of, you know, dip their toes in, like, quietly with a a little keyboard intro. I'm like, come on, let's just do this, right? (laughs) Yeah,
2: (laughs) it's funny. I have the exact same thing in my notes about this keyboard. It's almost like a a minute of dead air at the start of the album. Uh, It sets this ambient tone, which is kind of cool, but at the same time, I'm waiting for a Carmine, you know, drum fill, and it doesn't quite come right away. Yeah,
0: no, (laughs) I'm sorry, Chris, yeah.
1: I just wanted to say, like, um, I thought as somebody new to this, um, this was such a great song to kick off uh, the album. Um, it it just kind of reminded me of that kind of late 80s sound. And it's just, it's, it's done so well. Um, I like this a lot. And I, and I realized when I listened to it, I was like, Oh, this has the potential to be something I'm really going to enjoy. So, um, yeah, this is, I, I, I really like what you said about it as that being the, the quintessential song. Cause it really, um, I, it really resonated with me. I enjoyed this song quite a bit. It,
0: and, and, you know, just again, since I gravitate towards, you know, drummers, I was happy to hear, you know, Carmine, you know, he's known for these triplets, right? and, you know the, the the backstory is you know John Bonham is probably known as Mr. Triplet, right? And right. if you if you read the interviews with Bonham, he he nicked all of it from Vin, uh, from Carmine piece because right. Led Zeppelin was an opener for Vanilla Fudge on on, on their opening U.S. tours, and Carmine piece is just a huge influence on John Bonham, and thus really everything in rock and roll drumming, right? It, it, it kind of, you, you can go right back to Carmine a piece and, and in this first album, in this first song, he's throwing in some of those triplets right away. And I'm like, ah, great,
2: perfect, Carmine. And and, and that's why I will say from the outset, if you didn't know who this band was, to me it was the perfect blend of that Classic Led Zeppelin sound, which is obviously the bottom influence, combined with Sykes' White Snake songwriting. You put it together, that's what you have with a touch more. I, I listen, certain tracks, and we'll get to Valley of the Kings in a second, because to me, that's the, almost like their progressive track. It's almost like they were going in a rush type of direction. I <laughs> yeah, love yeah. It. I'll, I'll get to that, but you can see that the core sound here is that White Snake with that bluesy Led Zeppelin sound, and it, and it just carries through for the next 50 minutes. And, and you know what?
0: <laughs> Go ahead, I'm sorry. Again, no, go okay. for it. Uh, I was going to say, the, the one thing that kind of stands out to me amidst all this craziness, and, and, and you hear it fade in and out, is Tony Franklin has such a distinctive fretless bass sound, and it, it just comes through, and it just adds such a great dimension to the overall sound.
2: To me that is the highlight of the entire disc. His bass playing, that fretless bass that permeates the entire disc is what made yeah. this album not just good but very good or great depending on, on your feel for it. Uh, to me, that was the best part of the album. And it's not it, – it took me a while to warm up to Sykes' vocals, uh, which I did. <laughs> and, and Carmine – I knew what Carmine's drumming was because I had heard him on so many other projects – but really hearing Tony Franklin go crazy where the bass is not just on the album but it's a featured part of the album, that to me was what I think makes this stand out from other things. And it goes back to almost that progressive thing I was talking about earlier. Maybe it does. Maybe the album doesn't do as well commercially because it's just a little bit out there. You're not hearing this from, from Docking. You're not hearing this – from uh you know, from even from Whitesnake. It just didn't have that bass which led a lot of these tracks.
0: And, and one of the things you talk about Sykes' vocals, and this was really the first time, you know, he he was kind of this hired guitar hand, right? And you know, by the time this the CD comes out, he's already forged a really good career. You know, he, he starts with Tigers of Pantang, right? And that band, you know, a lot of people haven't heard of that band. But if you know Metallica, you know, that is Tigers of Pantang, right? It's so, a natural
2: extension. And, and Lars credits that although that early Metallica sound directly with Tigers.
0: So it's right. it's, so, the
2: na- it's the next...
0: So, so you got John Sykes probably being influential, you know, to the Metallica development, right? And, and then he joins... Thin Lizzie, which is one of my all-time favorite bands, right? And I, I know he was, you know, last tour it was towards the end, you know, sadly Phil Lynott, you know, passes away four years or so after. But but still, he's part of that Thin Lizzie legacy, and then he gets even bigger, joining White Snake, and you know that '87 album, you know, just it, it, it you know, to, in that world, it was as big as anything Michael Jackson. Had, any, had ever done, that one album, right? Um, and John Sykes is right in the middle of it, but this is really the first time we heard him sing. And and, and I get what you're saying, you know. The, the reviews on the album, some people liked the vocals, some people thought it was shrill or kind of over-the-top or just, you know, kind of, you know, almost cheesy, heavy metal vocals. I, I, I happen to like his vocals, but I, I get... That it's it's not an easy listen right at, at the start. His vocals.
2: It was definitely a grower, and, and and speaking of that, Chris, what are your thoughts on Sex Child, the second track? Because <laughs> that, that is uh, the perfect have, segue into that song.
1: I have thoughts. I do. I do want. I want to mention something <laughs> about that, um, about Sykes' vocals. Is that first of all, I, I like them right away. Um, and it remind you know. Call me crazy. It reminded me of, and this is a little bit of a, a deep cut reference, but if you guys ever heard Andrew Wood sing with Mother Love Bone, um, yeah. you know th- this was kind of like the the preamble to Pearl Jam and, and Soundgarden, and, and you know this was a their first album probably came out right around this exact same time, but that style where it was kind of like they were marrying the gr- the, the what would be grunge with the um the glam style that was still going on the hair metal style. I get a little bit of that from Sykes's vocals. It just kind of popped into my head and sex child kind of reminds me of a song that would have been on that mother love bone album because it's got like this kind of funk to it. Um, Andrew, I I need to ask was, were the lyrics supposed to make me feel uncomfortable?
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, (laughs) This is this is actually one of my. You know, I, I'll listen to this song. This is not one of the songs that you know that pops out for me. It's and, and to me, I, I think one of the issues is they shouldn't have put it right after Riot because to me, it's it, it's a pale comparison. Like it, it, it's a it's a cheap carbon copy of what they did in Riot. If this is at the end of the album, I am giving this this song a much different listen. I think.
2: And we talk about placement of of songs a lot when we do these episodes. I couldn't agree with you more. This is just not well placed. And and I'm all for innuendo and prude is something I am not. But this is so over the top and so in your face. Yeah. I just I, I, it was it was just too much too soon for me. I'm waiting. I'm
1: waiting for Steel Panther to release a cover of this. Yeah.
2: It's 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 it's. it's I, the the Steel Panther lyrics pale in comparison to the In Your Face Sex Child lyrics. It's incredible. I'll say this. Sykes' vocals on here, it's got a real Robert Plant vibe. I mean, like, I, I, I think that that is extremely prominent. And I, I almost thought I was listening to, like, a, I, something off The Houses of the Holy, but then at the same time with this lewd uh message which was which was just a little <coughs> bit too much for me not not my favorite track on the album probably my least favorite track on the album yeah. Would have better better well served on side two i think because kind of if you put this at the eighth track i think it's got a different feel
0: you know you, you know what's funny on their second album i i think they have a song called love child which i don't know if this is the direct sequel <laughs> But, but Love Child is a better song than Sex Child you know it's I, and and i yeah i the, the the lyrics you know of course we're talking in 21 right we're talking 2021 this comes out in 89 this is far from the worst or the lewdest lyrics <laughs> right also um, true yes yeah, yeah but yeah no i the, the the one thing this song, or, or the song, the the two things that that I do like on this song is, and you mentioned it's got a funky feel, uh, which Riot does not, and so I, I did like hearing you know this band doing a little bit of funk, uh, you know, which which they develop later on in the album, and and also you know, again, uh, Tony Franklin's bass almost saves. The song to me because you can just listen to it and just focus in on the bass and forget the lyrics and forget the cornball, you know, hair metal cheese factor of this right. and go, this is this is just a lesson in how to play the bass right here. I think that's very well said.
1: From, from, a, from like a radio standpoint, do you think they would have been better served releasing this as a single and try to get into people's homes that way. I mean, maybe they wouldn't have played it on the radio. I don't know. But, um, I, I, cause it, it kind of has more of a, I, I, I picture the 1980s MTV music video in a warehouse with giant fans blowing and hair all over the place. And, um, I just wonder if maybe this would have been a little bit more like easily digestible, as a single um, to maybe some people that were casual fans of of hard rock or heavy metal?
0: Well, I mean, it's probably more hummable. It's more hummable than than Riot, I would think. But I I don't even know if this would have played on the radio. I I, I just... (laughs) I, I just don't think it was their best effort, you know, all around. Although, you know, you, you, you wade through this miasma of, like, just kind of mediocrity in the song, and then you get to the outro, and John Sykes's guitar solo at the end of the song is as good as anything he plays on the album. So, you know, you have bits and parts where it, it's not like you can hit skip at any moment you know, uh, on this album, because there are those moments that come out of left field.
2: I, I agree. The solo almost saves the song. And, and like I said, Franklin's bass playing, which I mentioned earlier, um, the elements are there. It's just the whole package I think is missing. Speaking of the total package, I think I have to get you a beer next time I go to an Islanders Rangers game at the UBS <laughs> arena. Valley of the Kings is by far for me, the most amazing song I've heard on the album. And it was such a good song that it will be in constant rotation for me going forward. This is an epic, epic tune. And uh, like I said, I, I think I mentioned this off air. Fans of our, our podcast actually mentioned this track once they found out we were doing this particular yeah. band and this particular album. And with good reason. This track is awesome. I can, between Carmine's drum fills and Sykes' yeah. vocals and the catchy chorus, this is an 11 out of 10 and the, and the first beer's on me because this is perfect. <laughs> this is a perfect tune.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm really happy to, yeah. I, I, I'm, and, and, and it's funny. I, I got to tell you, like, I, I told you I was so looking forward to doing this, this podcast with you. At, at the same time, I had a month's worth of trepidation going, Oh my God. I might have just like recommended a total dud and we're going to get on this and they're just going to like you know crap all over me for an hour. So I'm, I'm just so happy to hear that you, 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 you appreciate this song so much. We we are
2: honest and we try to be honest with our reviews. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff that we gloat about because we're picking it. And, and there's other albums that we've picked which we haven't been as kind to in one, one way, shape or form. This track though is... Uh, It it makes a a good or a very good album and it bumps it up to that next level to a very good or a great album. And and for me, you know, each week we pick our song of the week. Valley of the Kings is my song of the week. It may be my song of the month. That's how much I enjoyed it. So I'll be posting that or or, or, or the, the video for it this week so that everyone can hear it.
1: It's, it's my song of the week too. I I absolutely love it. It's, it's, uh, the, the, the keyboard parts, what really drew me to it. And, um, I didn't even realize it was their single until after the fact, but, um, it's just, it's a very epic tune. Um, I, I, I just, uh, can't say enough about it. I I really enjoyed it, but, um, I feel like those, those keyboard parts, um, Really, kind of take it to another level of epicness, and I could totally understand why, like, um, real prog metal fans would, would gravitate towards a song like this. It's, it's, it's really a, a testament to the musicianship, the songwriting. I think the vocals are really, uh, some of Sykes' best work on the album. Um, I think the only thing that the only thing that kind of stinks about it is that it's this—it's so early on in the album. It almost—I feel like this would have made a really epic, like, final track. But um, uh, that might be the only negative thing I have to say about it. Just—I think this is a really fantastic tune.
0: Yeah, and and you—I I, I love this again. Going back to the drumming, uh, 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 Carmine is just an absolute monster on this track. I mean, he okay. just pushes it forward you know and to me and I'm glad you guys said epic because that's what I had in my notes you know this this has an epic feel to it you can th- this is one of those songs you turn up to 11 with the headphones and you just immerse yourself in it and it, it, if you read through the lyrics um to me it's almost a direct descendant of of the rainbow song stargazer if if you read those lyrics.
2: You took the words out of my mouth. I swear my next and final comment for this song was, this is Rainbow and that's what I was hearing when I I heard it. I I didn't pick up on the lyrical content, although now that you mention it, I can certainly see that but to me, this is that epic Rainbow tune, like a Stargazer or a Gates of Babylon and and I just hear hear, it was was almost like a sequel but even though none of these guys were, were, were on those early Rainbow albums.
0: You know, and, and, and interesting, and, and one, one of the things I really enjoy about your podcast, because, you know, I'm a sports writer, right, so writing is very important to me, I, I really appreciate the fact that you guys own in hone in on the, the songwriting, and, and who's written what, and, you know, and, and how that factors into that. I, I always enjoy listening to you guys talk about who writes what tracks, and, you know, how that all fits in. This is the only track on the album where Tony Martin gets a co-writing, songwriting credit. And, and Tony Martin, you know, if, if you're not familiar with the whole Black Sabbath saga through the 80s, uh, Tony Martin was the vocalist who followed Ray Gillen, who followed Glenn Hughes, who followed Ian Gillen, who followed Ronnie James Dio. But But Tony Martin, although he only sang in Black Sabbath, is a multi-instrumentalist. And, and he plays everything. He's he's really a brilliant musician. You, you read the interviews from Tony Martin, and he sort of feels gypped because he claims to have co-written many, many songs on on this on this album CD. But this is the only one he gets uh, songwriting credit for. And, and, and I, I couldn't agree more. It's 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 an epic tune. You know, and and by the end, you know, every time, even though I know what's coming, I am singing along the the na 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 na. I'm singing along with that. By the end, yeah. it's it's totally roped me in.
1: And and it sounds like something that would have been epic in an arena full of fans singing along. And I I, I feel like that would have been a really cool thing to to be a part of. And yeah um speaking of this, I, I did you ever see these I'm, guys
2: live or was that uh or did you never have the chance to see
0: them i never I mean, i'm trying to remember i'm sure if they had come through syracuse like i would have run to see them i i just can't recall ever getting it i mean they're they're they were like a shooting star you know you, you either caught it once or you never caught them and and sure. i just don't recall the chance to 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 to, to see him, but yeah, you know, I, I, I've certainly listened to any Blue Murder bootleg there is out there, and this song is absolutely stunning in concert. And you know, one of the things, you know, as I'm listening to it, and and Bob Rock was the producer on this album, and you know, when you go through Bob Rock's career, this this album is kind of rated as one of his better you know, produced CDs. I, I think the production on this one particular track is better than, you know, the, all the other tracks. I just think they got, you know, Bob rock got everything perfect when, when he put this track together.
2: Yeah. And and that's, I guess the reason, at least for myself, why it's the song of song of the week. I, just I wanted to, to actually
1: mention earlier, um, but we've just been on a roll so far, but, um, <laughs> I think for an album that came out in 1989, I think the whole album sounds really good. I mean, we've talked about albums that came out in the 90s that don't sound nearly as good production-wise as this does. This is a really well-produced album, so I'm glad you brought that up.
0: Chris, let me
2: ask you this question, Uh, just, just shifting away from Valley of the Kings for a second. Jelly Roll has a completely different feel, right? And this is more of that bluesy track. It's almost like a perfect contrast. What did you think of, of the follow-up track? Because this is one of those tracks that um, everyone seems to talk about when they when they talk about this album.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I could definitely, uh, you know, understand or, or um, connect to a song with the title <laughs> Jelly Roll, as I'm a big fan of all sorts of baked goods, <laughs> Jelly Rolls, not the least of them. But um, I, I, I like that. It, it's kind of like a tale of two songs because it starts out like with this real kind of bluesy, almost like I get like picture, like hanging out at a, at a blues bar, like hanging out, but then it kind of, it kind of morphs into a kind of like a, a ballad, um, almost like a love song, which is interesting that is a love song called jelly roll, but um, <laughs> I like this a lot. And it, it definitely shows that they have um, a really good, um, a handle on the the softer side of things as well. I mean, right after you go from Valley of the Kings, which is this epic heavy tune to this kind of jazzy bluesy kind of, uh, a little bit more mellow. Um, but this is also a really good tune. I like this a lot.
0: I I think this might actually be Tony Franklin's best, uh, track on the album. If you just isolate the bass, Um, and, and to me, you know, there were there were a lot of things about Blue Murder that that were kind of you know uh, very constructed or, or very deliberate, and and it was very clear that you know the, the record company you know they, they they wanted to be this big you know a radio band, this big concert band. They wanted to make a lot of money with this endeavor, and to me, this was the song that they wrote to get radio play, and also. This was the song they wrote to to put in the middle of the concert, so everyone would raise their lighters and kind of sway back and forth. Uh, it, it, to me, it's a very deliberate. like there's a reason they wrote this song.
2: Yeah, I I, I can definitely definitely hear that. Um, Did
1: either of you get a like a, an extreme vibe? Like it kind of reminded me a little bit of Wholehearted, yeah. the way the the acoustic guitar plays. I mean, maybe not like a ton, but I got, it made me think of extreme a little bit.
0: Yeah, I could see that. You know, it's very radio friendly and, and kind of an upbeat kind of catchy way.
1: So yeah, yeah I think it's it sort of done well on the radio. I, I agree.
2: And, and to your point, Chris, it really is a, t- a tale of two songs for me. I particularly love the second half of the song. And I think it really picks up in, in a way that the first half um, is a little more I guess, slower and deliberate in in, in certain ways, so I I completely agree with you. Um, And
1: in the 80s, it it wasn't, like, typical for a song that kind of had a y like, power ballad vibe to it to not be super cheesy, and I don't think this is super cheesy at all.
0: (laughs) Well, I I, I think John Sykes' acoustic guitar playing at at the beginning, I think, kind of separates it from, you know, from that cheesiness factor.
1: yeah. But even like lyrically too, or I, and I don't know, it just has more of a I guess more of like a serious love song kind of vibe than a than a um, than something like really goofy um, that a lot of times power ballads tend to, to sound like. From that, the I mean, maybe in the late '80s they started to figure out how to, to make it less cheesy. I don't know, but um, <laughs> it works. It's a it's a really good tune, um, and and I could see why it. What, was this actually released officially as a second single? Or
0: um, I, I, I do believe it, they they made a video for this, um, and I think the story was it just didn't get as much rotation time because the first video didn't really you know take off and resonate. So as a result, they they weren't really willing to push the second video as hard. Otherwise, I think this would have been it.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely true. Why don't we talk about the self-titled track? It's it starts again with that amazing drum fill where uh, it, it's it, this. This is kind of what I wanted for that first minute of the album with the drums.
0: Yeah. But yeah.
2: we obviously get there. It's kind of a mid-paced rock anthem, but it's got some parts where the, it's almost like a rap type vocals over the slower <laughs> music. It's a really diverse tune, even though it's a bit repetitive towards the second half. I'd love to know your thoughts.
0: Well, it's the only song credited to all three, to Sykes, to, to. well, it's it's actually credited, uh, yeah, to, to all three guys. And the way I envision this is they were in the studio and Carmine Appice came up with this great drum shuffle and these two other great players just sort of went with it. And that's how they, I mean, I don't know if that's how it is, but I totally hear that, that this was out of a a studio jam with Carmine just coming up with this great kind of shuffle beat and and the rest of them, you know, picking up. And, you know, to me, it's a great song. And and lyrically, it fits in. You know, they they have, you know, uh, Riot, Blue Murder, Billy, all this kind of down on your luck kind of street kid sort of vibe, and, and, and Blue Murder fits right into that. And, and and I agree with, you know, John Sykes takes a little bit, bit of a different tact in his vocal approach on this one.
2: Yeah, no, noticeably so. Um, Chris, what did you think of this? Because to me, I, I found myself enjoying it more and more with each listen. I don't know that I loved it at first, but every time I heard it, I was like, wow, you know what? I'm really starting to enjoy this with subsequent listens.
1: Yeah, it's it's got like that kind of um, really kind of uh, catchy mid tempo vibe to it. Um, I found myself um, humming the the chorus in my head after a few listens. Um, I again like it's uh, it's another. uh, I think it's another style of song. You're 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 looking at. um, I feel like so far, like all five songs kind of have their own flavor. Um, Nothing's kind of started to sound like a previous song yet, um, which I think is really cool that um, they all have kind of a unique sound. Um, and uh, I, I thought the, um, I mean, the guitar work all over this album is fantastic, but particularly in this song, it's really, I, I, it really stood out to me. I thought it was really good. Now you get into the power ballad, right? You get into that
2: classic um like, to me, this is right out of the time period because every band was doing songs like Out of Love, and I guess this was their take on it. Um, and I just, you know, so typical of the time from the lyrical theme down to the way that song was constructed.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is, to me, it's far from the best track on this album. And it, it, I, I, I I agree, you know, there was nothing new in, in, in this track. It could have been on... On a lot of different bands' albums, uh, the, the the one thing that separates it to me is once you accept the fact that it's you know an eighties cheesy ballad thing, is just the musicians the musicianship on the uh, on the track kind of you know separates it a little bit, and, and, and to me, you know, if you read. You know, John Sykes, uh, I think I I read an interview David Coverdale was saying about John Sykes that he really doesn't like the blues. He didn't want to write the blues, and and he wanted to stay away from the blues. And, you know, even when they, uh, on the Whitesnake 87 album, when they uh, re-recorded Crying in the Rain, which is, you know, just a great track, and now it's, you know, known as Tommy Aldridge's drum solo track. Right, right they eliminated the you know that that song had a much bluesier feel when it was initially recorded by White Snake and John Sykes just wiped that completely out made it a much harder song so to me the song is a little bit surprising because John Sykes is playing like Gary Moore here and and, and obviously there is that you know a, a thin Lizzy connection between the two of them, I know the two of them knew each other. You know, Gary Moore and, and Phil Lynott did wonderful work together. Um, actually, it was funny. One of the as, as you go down a rabbit hole listening to the influences, one of the songs I was listening to this week was a uh, a Phil Lynott and uh, Gary Moore track called "Out in the Fields," which mm. it was not under the Finn Lizzy banner, but you know, just. It, it, to me, this was John Sykes' kind of tribute to Gary Moore in, in a way, and and if you listen to it like that, then I I appreciate it more than if it was just what it is.
1: Yeah, that's I, a, that's an oft-covered uh, song by a lot of metal bands. Um, I have uh, Sonata Artica, Primal Fear, and Powerwolf um, on my computer just yeah covering that song alone, so. it's a great song, fantastic song. We
2: get to Billy, and this was the biggest surprise for me, but only because I had heard this song, I just never knew who who it was. So as I'm listening to this album, um, again, to me, in my eyes, I'm like, I've never heard Blue Murder, I've never heard a note from these guys. But when I'm playing Billy, I realized somewhere in the recesses of my brain, I had heard this track, Couldn't Tell You Where, Don't Know, I, I don't know where or who played it for me, but I had definitely heard this, and I—it's probably my second favorite track on the album because, for for many of the reasons, of Valley of the king, it's just so catchy. Um, it's just this mid-race, mid-paced hard rock anthem with a cool riff, and obviously the bass lines. I love this track. It's—it's. It's, I, I just wish I knew where I had first heard it because I didn't know who it was, and it, it's. But it's somewhere, somewhere back there. I just don't know where.
1: You, I was annoyed you know the that they managed to uh, to make the the word public three syllables instead of two. So <laughs> I <kind of laughs> took away. I, I just I, and this was another one that was just in my head. I would just keep hearing "public enemy number one." <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like, it's, so that's this one stuck with me.
0: It's a it's a very driving song it, to me, and it, it sounds strange to say this about an album that's. 32 years old or whatever it is at this point. But to me, this is the most quote unquote modern sounding track on the whole, on the whole CD. It's almost, you know, in a way it's almost got a new wave influence to it with the low keyboard fl- flourishes in the back. And I, I, I absolutely, I, I love this track when it came out. I love the lyrics I, I love the feel to it. And yeah, you know, I, this did, I, I think this got played a little bit on the radio. Um, I, I, don't know whether there was ever a video along with this, but, uh, it, it was definitely one of the songs. I know, you know, like, like I said, when they, when they first broke and they were trying to push this band out there, right? And they would get them on some TV shows. And it, it sounds very strange 32 years later. But one of their big TV appearances was on the Weird Al Yankovic show, right? And this was the song they played for Weird Al. And at the time, you're you know now it's like a oh, Weird Al that must have been some cable access show, but no, it was it was a serious big show, and people saw you know Blue Murder playing Billy at, at that time.
2: Yeah, it's 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 a really really underrated track, I think, because it's not the first one that people talk about. When they talk about this album, and it, it, I don't know that it gets the love of some of the tracks in the top half of the album, but it's, it's, it's a fantastic, fantastic tune. Maybe,
1: maybe they would have gotten more popularity had Weird Al parodied the song. <laughs> <and released it. laughs> you, you,
0: you know, one of the things that really works on this album is it, John Sykes is obviously a lead guitarist, right? He, he's known for his solos and everything. I think this is his best rhythm guitar work. Uh, on the whole album. I mean, that, that, that chugging rhythm guitar he has just, it it really gives a song an edge to me. It's one of the few tracks. I call
1: this uh, a toe tapper. This is a toe tapper
0: song. (laughs) It's one of the few tracks where I actually appreciate
2: the riff more than the solo that I know is going to come later on. So I think that's a great point. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then, you know, it's funny because now we get to the, the eighth track, uh, (laughs) It, you know, I, I, I always said that when it comes to my hard rock and heavy metal, I want to hear about the Egyptian philosophers and mathematicians, and we finally get there with Ptolemy. So who knew? The track I've been clamoring for for the better part of 40 years,
0: and here it was hiding on a Blue Murder album. You know, it, it, it's funny, and, and, and not to be you know, uh, presumptuous, I don't know if I get a track of the week. but Oh, you oh, we were going to get there. Oh, okay, because I'll tell, tell you me. what. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm going to pick Ptolemy because and and which which blew me away uh, when I started re-listening to this you know CD to, to to prep for this podcast because I would have thought I would have picked Riot or I would have picked Valley of the King or or Billy or Jelly Roll or you know or Blue Murder those were the songs that you know to me were the quote unquote hits off of this album right. Absolutely. I I on re-listening to this, I absolutely love this song. And, and and you wait, you get to the end of the C D and I, I don't know you know, I, I find everything about this song interesting, the, the, the weird Middle Eastern vibe to it, you know, to, to to break in and then boom, you get right into it. You know, I, and now I, I, I've been trying to figure out what the heck he's talking about with these lyrics. And, you know, and Ptolemy, who, who obviously is, you know, a, a second century geographer and astronomer and everything. I can't, I, I, I don't know what kind of drugs he was taking to yeah. figure this out. But it's. To Pass him it's around. Do, do yeah. 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 I mean, the, 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 the best I can figure is. It's sort of the, the, the hero of this song is a conceited guy and he considers himself the center of the universe. And, and you know, the Ptolemy, when he put together his star map, the earth was at the, everything rotated around the earth. So I'm just imagining they're trying to make some analogy about this one guy. Puts himself at the center of everything, and everything is revolved. I, I could be a hundred percent incorrect about that. <laughs> it's uh, as good a guess as any, and I'm sure Chris would be the first
2: one to say when we when we kind of do these deep dives, nothing is more enjoyable than going back and finding tracks that may not have been our favorites. Ten, fifteen, twenty years ago, or whatever the case may be, and then saying, "My God, I must have overlooked this or I missed this." to me, that's one of the most enjoyable parts about doing this. Would you agree?
1: I, I think it I think it it also is more likely to happen with songs that tend to be towards the end of a, an album, especially an album that has a lot of strong songs earlier on because it's almost like I think I used the word fatigue. I don't know if it's the right word to use but it's almost as if like you're you get to a point where like I've heard so many good songs like it's almost like you something in your brain clicks off and it's like I've already heard all the good stuff or the really good stuff but um that I think I had mentioned that a couple of times when we talked about Sonata Artica. um I like this song a lot I think it's probably my it would have been my probably my song of the week if not for Valley of the Kings and I think that it also it is epic in the way that Valley of the Kings was too, and I think that it's another one of those songs that I think um, modern prog metal uh, fans would really gravitate towards. I think it's a really, um, just a, a really awesome epic tune, and, and now we have a little bit, of, uh, a little bit of a lyrical uh, guidelines to go along with it because um, I, I didn't know what the hell they were singing about either. <laughs> <laughs> The, the
2: album kind of closes out with a song which to me, uh, although emblematic of, of the disc as a whole, is probably the song that brought me back to 1989 and what was going on at that time more than any other. And, and it's funny because Blackhearted Woman is just this fun, hard rock song, very catchy and and the you know sometimes I make these comparisons to other bands and although I won't say it sounded just like it, I'll say that the way the song was composed, I kept hearing Vinnie Vincent and that whole those two invasion albums from the mid eighties that kind of just came out right before this album. And I don't know if Kiss was an influence or Vinnie Vincent's work was influential to, to you know to, to to these guys when they were putting it together, but to me this song would have fit perfectly on those two Vinnie Vincent albums.
0: Yeah, to, I, I could I could definitely see that, and you know, and Vinnie Vincent Invasion is one of those other bands that's kind of faded into the, uh, you know, the atmosphere here, but uh, to me, when I listen to the song, just even, you know, a, a closer relationship, I, I think this song could have been on the Whitesnake 87 album, easily, and, you know, I know there are a lot of radio-friendly, strong songs on Whitesnake 87, but if this this song had been on that album, this probably would have been my favorite song on the White snake 87 album. I just, you know, it, it could have been just a throwaway, let's stick this on the end of the, the disc type of song. And I, I just think this band was so good that it, it doesn't become that. It becomes, you know, one of the stronger tracks on the album.
1: I think this would have made a great radio song. I think it would have been a hit uh, MTV radio, whatever at the time, I think it really would have resonated with people that were a fan of, of hard rock and heavy metal. Uh, I I think this is a really, like, I think Justin said the word fun. It, it's like a, it's just a fun tune. Like it's just a, something that, again, you tap your toe to and you want to have a beer and it just makes you feel good.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I could hear Ian Gillen singing this with, with deep purple. You know, or, yeah. or, or, you know, or David Coverdale singing this. I, I, I could hear a, a ton of different singers just, you know, having fun with this.
2: When when bands were coming out and feeling that pressure to release an album either every year or at least every other year, uh, what I found with a lot of albums from this time period, whether it be your Dawkins or your Slaughter's or your Going Back to Your Motley Cruise, there were a lot of great tracks on these albums but then you'd have these filler tracks which were clearly just designed to take up four minutes i didn't get the sense that this track was that and to your point could have easily slipped onto that white snake album because of it was just such a strong track the this album doesn't have the filler material and it's diverse enough that you never get the sense that they just tagged this song on there to take up time
0: yeah i mean the closest thing is probably out of love and yes. and that song, you know, has its has its value in its own way too, you know. But uh yeah, uh, you know, I had almost forgotten about Black Hearted Woman. Um, and, and then, you know, I, again, I, I just think the CD finishes so strong between Ptolemy and, and Black Hearted Woman. You know, it it starts so strong with Riot, and they just they're able to carry it right through the whole fifty two minutes
2: yeah i I agree and i think that that really just put they puts a bow on on what's otherwise an enjoyable enjoyable listen every week we will ultimately rate these albums on a scale of one to ten you you know how that goes i'm curious to see and i'll start with you chris what do you rate this album on a scale of one to ten for someone that had never heard a note from these from these guys
1: i i give it an 8.25 and i think that that is like a preliminary rating because I think as I continue to listen to this album and have it marinate um, more, I mean, there's such a difference between like Andrew loving this album for, you know, 30 plus years or 20 plus no 30 plus years um, that it not only is it a strong album, but it has this um, nostalgic part of it too. Um, And so unfortunately for us, like we won't, have that maybe we can revisit it in 30 years (laughs) and see how we feel about it but uh i could definitely see myself going back to listening to this again and and liking it even more but for only having been aware like aware of it for the last six days um i'd say that's a pretty strong rating uh, for something i was just didn't even know existed um until andrew brought it to our attention so yeah i would give it an 8.25 with room to grow Andrew, scale of 1 to 10, going back to this album now
2: after all these years, what do you rate this?
0: Yeah, you know, I I, I would think I would give it a 9.0. And uh, and that's, you know, as Chris mentions, there's a huge nostalgia factor for me in this. I mean, it really is one of my favorite CDs. Um, And and in fact, this CD is so old that when I bought it, I bought it on tape. You know, like, I have the Blue Murder tape. I, I don't even think I have the, the Blue Murder CD. Um, <laughs> there you go. So, so, I mean, the only thing that, that, that really knocks it down to me is, uh, as we discussed, Sex Child just is, is not really, you know, it, it knocks it down a little bit. And then Out of Love, although I can listen to that song, I, I, I sort of wish they had, You know, if Out of Love and Sex Child could have been replaced by, you know, two stronger songs, this is a a, a solid 10 for me.
2: Yeah, I, I, I completely share those sentiments. I give the album an eight, which is a very good score. Uh, you know, I, I enjoyed it much more than I thought I would because I thought I had a real firm grasp of some of those old gems. Um, and this was just a surprise because it was a new name for me. And I actually talked to a friend of mine. I said, have you heard of Blue Murder? Because, you know, he's he's into it. He's a little older than I am. And he said to me, yeah, I remember them, you know, going back, you know, I guess hearing them as a as a little bit, of a young teenager at the time, or I guess he might've been 14 or 15 when this came out and he has vivid memories of the album. So, um, it's, 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 it's ingrained in people's consciousness, maybe just not mine because I just kind of missed the boat. As, as Chris mentioned, we were seven when it came out, but I, I, it was, it was definitely cool. I want to hear the second album. I don't expect to like it nearly as much, but I will give it a listen. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I, it's
0: go ahead. Sorry.
1: No, go and, ahead, Andrew, please.
0: All right, I, I was going to say, you, you're, you're going to find that the second album is just not quite up to the quality of this. It, it has its, you know, okay tracks. Uh, you know, We All Fall Down, you know, was pushed a little bit. But in general, I, I think by then the band was already splintering. Like I said, you know, Tony Franklin and Carmine Apiece were just session guys uh, on that second album. And they sort of. It, it, it sort of was because Tony Franklin and, 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 and Carmine apiece sort of got tired of waiting for John Sykes to get off his butt and make a second album and they, they they moved on to other projects. And uh, if you could real quick, uh, just putting a bow on my experience with Blue Murder. Um, a few years ago, I, I, I was up in Buffalo. Uh, I, I forget whether I was covering the Rangers or the Devils at that point. But I, I, I had a morning flight back from Buffalo to New York, uh, uh, back to uh, LaGuardia. And I'm, I'm in this small Buffalo airport and this dude with really jet black hair and kind of a pirate skull, you know, cross hanging out of his left ear with some purple streaks and his hair walks past me into the men's room. And I go, that, that's that got to be Carmine apiece. Oh, my God. You know, and, and but, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm around, you know, quote, unquote, famous hockey players all the time, or, or you know, I've covered other sports. So I, I, I certainly respect people's privacy when they're in public like that. So I'm not going to run into the bathroom and scream, are you Carmine piece? I love you, you know? <laughs> So, so, I get on this flight back to New York, and sure enough, like I'm on the aisle, it's, you know, two by two configuration. It's a small computer, a uh, small commuter flight, and in the seat next to me is the dude with the jet black hair and the purple streaks. And I'm looking at him, and he opens his laptop, and his screensaver is a, a picture of the, the, the radio chick, the, the, the DJ, uh, Leslie Gold. Who was Carmine's? I, I think she's still his girlfriend, right? And I'm That's like, right. this is Carmine apiece, right? And I, I'm just dying to talk to him, but I'm like, he's on his laptop just like I am. I'm writing a story. He's doing some spreadsheet. I'm like, I'm not going to bother him because I, I don't like it when I'm bothered on planes, right? So <laughs> the, the the plane lands at Laguardia, and you know we're all getting our stuff out, and I'm standing up next to him. I grab my my duffel bag, and I just sort of whisper to him without saying his name because in case anyone else, you know, knows who he is, I don't want to draw attention to him. I go, look, I just need to say, I totally respect your work. Yeah. You're, you're amazing at what you do. You've given me years of enjoyment and and thank you very much. And that I said my piece, that's all I was going to say. Carmine uh, being just a, you know, a regular guy from Brooklyn turns out to be one of the nicest guys in the world. And we wound up chatting for like 20 minutes, you know, after this flight. And, I was, you know, I was saying, I, you know, I love, you know, I love everything you've done, and I said, but I got to be honest with you, like, I, I, I absolutely adore Blue Murder, and I told him, you know, we wore it out in college, and he goes, I can't tell you how many people like are focused in on this one CD and and want us to get back together. There are so many calls for us to get back together. And I'm like. What, what's stopping you? And he goes, John Sykes is the laziest MF in the world, and I can't get his ass off the couch. Straight from the horse's mouth. There you have yeah. it. That's a, that's a
1: great story. It's, sto- it's stories like that that are that like are part of what makes doing this podcast so much fun and it's nice to hear somebody else's stories instead of ours for a change. So um you know before we before we, we sign off I, I was going to ask Andrew to do us a favor for some of our younger listeners and explain what a CD is but um then he started talking about then he started talking about tapes, so we might have to do like a whole other episode explaining um, earlier musical vernacular to the young children out there who have only ever listened to music on their iPhones. Uh, we used to do I, I, things differently.
0: I, 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 I'll go one better. Some of my college housemates, um, they had eight tracks in their cars. So oh, boy. It, it, yeah, I mean. Like, I, I never owned an 8-track because there were four sides and you had to keep flipping from side to side to side. But I, I do know what an 8-track looks like, and I have listened to songs on an 8-track.
1: <laughs> well, you know, oddly enough, um, the new Halloween album that we talked about a few weeks ago, they released that on cassette. Um, so I think... Oh, wow. The, I don't know that cassettes are going to have a revival the way vinyl has, but um, there's definitely... a a want for it, and I think it's just this retro kind of mindset of, um, you know, what's old is new again, and I saw a friend of mine on Facebook posted a photo, he bought the CD, the vinyl, and the cassette tape of the new Halloween album, so I thought that was kind of cool, because my first experience owning a stereo as as a kid was a record player with a cassette deck and an AM-FM radio that you could record your vinyl records or the radio onto the tape. So, um, But, you know, uh, um, uh, it it dawned on me not that long ago, I have a friend who's um, probably about 10 years younger than me, and she um, she comes and cleans our house every few weeks. And uh, I think I said something to her about, burning her a CD. And she looked at me like I had three, three heads. And I'm like, geez, how old am I? At burning a CD is now passe. So oh uh, man. Now, actually there is, there is one other thing uh, that I wanted to bring up and I'm glad I remembered it. Um, Andrew, let us know if you would be interested in this, but me and Justin spoke about this and we think this is kind of a fun idea would you be interested in coming back on the show and we give you an album to listen to that we're fairly certain that you've never heard before that we have and get your thoughts on that? Oh,
0: absolutely. That would be a a ton of fun. I mean, to, to be honest, I mean, you know, you know, a lot of the, 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 bands you guys talk about, like I I'm like, I've either heard the name or I've totally not heard the name. Like for instance, like uh, you you did the episode on Seven Spires I had never heard of Seven Spires but then I, I you know what I enjoy about listening to the podcast is you you're like expanding my horizons right because at a certain point I just absolutely stopped listening to new music just because between the job and you know for whatever reason right so I I love I love listening to new music Um, you know, like now I can't wait to, for seven spires to come around and, and, you know, uh, the, the, the one you just did, um, what was it? Sonata uh, Artica, right? Yeah. 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 They're fantastic. I, I can't wait to, and I know they're not necessarily a new band, but to me, they're sort of new. So no, I'm, I'm absolutely game for that.
2: That will definitely be fun. Why don't you uh, t- tell everyone that's listening a little bit about what you do and where they can hear more, hear
0: and, and see some of your work, because obviously you have your hands in a lot of different things. Oh, yeah. No, I, I appreciate that. I, I am a NHL writer. I cover the New York Islanders for Newsday. Um, and if you're not living on Long Island, and I know a lot of people don't buy newspapers anymore, but we are online at newsday.com. Uh, that's backslash sports. Anything on the Islanders is newsday.com backslash isles. And I also do, uh, my own podcast, uh, called Island Ice. Um, you know, we, we, we try and get at least one out per week. You know, during the season, we're doing more than one. Uh, during the playoffs, we're doing one after every game. Um, so that, that, that's the Island Ice podcast and that, and that's available. Wherever you, you find podcasts and also on the Newsday website at, at newsday.com backslash aisles. So thank, thanks for allowing me to plug that.
2: Oh, our, our pleasure. Thank you for joining us, and uh, we'll do it again soon. All right, buddy?
0: Yeah, no, looking forward to it. Absolutely. That, that, that sounds like a fun exercise. Thanks. No problem. Thanks, sir.
1: Andrew, really, really appreciate you coming on with us, and I hope that. The next time we do a podcast, uh, maybe the Islanders will have announced who they've signed and traded for, (laughs) for the upcoming season.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, nothing so far. We've, uh, I've been trying everything to get them to announce, uh, you know, going out on a bike ride, you know, later on today, Mm -hmm. I'm going to try and go kayaking, just, you know, just anything to kind of spur some movement. I mean, I'm, supposed to start vacation next week and I just have this horrible feeling that I'm going to be working through a lot of that because Lou Lamarillo is just, you know, he's playing a different game than 31 other GMs in the (laughs) (laughs) NHLs.
2: But to his credit, it's been working for for a very long time, and certainly the last two years. And that's coming from someone who's a, a fan of a team across the pond, if you will.
0: You no. Know? <laughs> yeah. No. Absolutely. And uh, well, the, the the Chris Drury, your new GM, is has just about signed up every tough guy uh, on the planet at this point. I, so. I
2: I understand the need for grit in your lineup. Uh, But I don't think that they were that far away that they needed to basically implode the second and and fourth lines. But I digress. Um, I'll I'll give it a chance before I say that this was a complete failure. Uh, But uh, they, they, they they need some of the young guys to really step up because they've
0: lost a lot of scoring.
1: Yeah, Any no, truth absolutely. to the rumor that uh, they're asking Mick Vakota to come out of retirement? To the yeah,
0: no, Sa- Sandy McCarthy and uh, yeah, yeah, no, well. <laughs> Nick Nicky Fatio is still around someplace. <laughs> too, so. <laughs> Get him skates. We'll uh, we'll sign him back up. But uh,
2: anyway, yeah. thank you again, Andrew. We will talk soon.
0: No, guys, thank you so much. You guys do such a great job with your podcast. It's it's a real honor for you guys to have me on. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. That means a lot to us. Thank you, Andrew. And we're back on the metal exchange. And, uh, this week, uh, another new feature, not just, uh, we aren't just debuting, uh, having a a third voice in the room, uh, on an album review, but we're also going to add a new, uh, segment towards the end of the podcast where we kind of talk about, um, some of the the current goings on in, in the, in the prog and power metal world. And, Unfortunately, we're gonna our first uh, our first segment of this is not great news, and and that's the that metal church's vocalist Mike Howe um, passed away this past week on Monday, July twenty sixth. Um, a a lot of pouring out of um, positive uh, messages as far as positive experiences people had with meeting Mike um, and. Um, just big fans of his music and, and, uh, you know, metal church had the opportunity to headline one of the nights at, at Prague power USA. And, and, uh, a lot of people had a lot of positive things to say about that performance. So, um, that was something that had, uh, that had happened. And then, and then unfortunately, um, the very, on the, actually on the same day, uh, it was announced the day after, um, Joey Jorison Uh, formerly of Slipknot, uh, passed away as well. So it was just uh, kind of a a somber uh, week in in the metal world. Um, So, uh, you know, unfortunately, those were uh, two things, you know, that happened. Hopefully um, this uh, segment won't be as somber going forward, but um, definitely uh, two things that um, definitely deserve mention, I thought.
2: Yeah, I I completely agree. And I, I just wanted to say a couple of words about Mike Howe. I remember... Hearing Metal Church for the first time in the early 2000s, believe it or not, it was on a radio show here in New York City. Uh, It was uh, the host of the show was named or I guess his nickname was Fingers. And he had this show on uh, WBAB here in new york called fingers metal shop and every so often if i was in the car or if it was i think it was friday or saturday night that the the show was on i remember being in the car and he played a classic song from metal church and i had never heard of the band but i just remember really really enjoying the song and and specifically the vocalist and it was mike howe who was singing and i for whatever reason never listened to too much metal church after that until I found out that they were playing prog power. And as you had mentioned, and I, and I caught that set and I didn't have the highest expectations. I just, for some reason, wasn't familiar with the, with, with the albums. And I just didn't know what to expect. And I left that set a fan of the band the the band was very tight and the songs were really good, but Mike Howe put on one of the most surprising vocal performances that I've ever seen. Um, and it's not just because my expectations were, were not through the roof, but it was just a it widely regarded as one of the better sets um, to grace that stage in Atlanta. And it's just a true tragedy um, to hear about his passing and obviously Joey's as well. Um, but, you know, we'd be, we'd be, it's it's just important for us to to note their passing and obviously their legacy will live on through the music and and I, I just wanted to say a couple of words about my experience with 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 Mike Howe um, and I'll, we'll we'll leave you with one other uh, news bit which I think is really relevant given our conversation about Blue Murder and obviously White Snake. Um, a singer that we've talked about a number of times in various capacities on this show, Dino Jelusic, uh, from uh, formerly of Animal Drive, uh, the Croatian singer, also obviously from his time with TSO, he has joined White as another member of the band, and obviously the backing vocalist uh, Michelle Lupi is already with the band, so they have now a stable. Of backup singers and multi-instrumentalists uh, that will be joining them on stage. And I have to admit, I was never the biggest White Snake f- fan, but I have to go see the show now because I want to see these guys sing with David uh, up front because the, you got three of the best voices of all time in one band now. It's pretty remarkable.
1: I would argue that David Coverdale is the worst vocalist
2: of the three. <laughs> he, 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 it's, it's, At least it's currently. Tough, <laughs> it is tough to argue otherwise. And I think that that's really just a testament to Michelle Lupi and obviously to Dino Jalusic who may be the best young and uh, up and coming vocalist out there. So it's going to be very, very interesting. Uh, but with that, uh, now that we've finished our topic uh, for the week with Blue Murder, I'd love to know what we're going to be listening to next week because mm-hmm. – we haven't discussed it, and I'm obviously got to get ready to listen to it.
1: Well, so I feel like um, before this week we were kind of uh, going heavy down the the power metal road. So I kind of wanted to step away from from that and um, and go with a uh, an album that I know is probably one of your all-time favorite albums, and, and it's definitely one of mine, but it's a band we haven't discussed. It's an album that needs to be discussed, and uh, it, it's 2008's Mercy Falls album from the band Seventh Wonder. Um, some people may be more familiar with uh, vocalist Tommy Karabik from his, his work as current uh, Camelot vocalist, but um, this album pretty much was my introduction to him as a vocalist and the band on a whole. Um, so, uh, it's, it's got a, it's got a, a, a story built into it. Um, it's, it's a very well-received, well-loved album in the prog metal community. And, uh, just to kind of get out of the power metal world after talking about Hammerfall and Snot Arctic I thought it'd be a, a nice, uh, switch over to talk a bit about 7th Wonder.
2: Yeah, this is a, this is a good choice. Um, kind of digging a little bit deeper, I guess, just because as much success as Camelot has had, uh, over the years and really over the last two decades now, Seventh Wonder never really hit the pinnacle of success. Although I would argue that this album, and some of the other tracks that they recorded over the years are every bit as good, if not better than than a lot of the Camelot material from the last 10 or 15 years or so. So it's going to be a very, very interesting listen. I think that's a really good choice. I haven't listened to this album in in a couple of years.
1: Yeah, it's been a while for me as well. And uh, I can tell you exactly how long it's been. Um, Yeah, it's been, I think, at least two years since I've listen to the whole thing start to finish maybe even longer than that but um i I definitely have some thoughts (laughs) some some thoughts on this album i know you do too Uh, you were the one who brought this album to my attention um 13 years ago i can't believe it's been that long already but um, it is the time go right it's it's crazy but uh, i
2: look forward to it uh thank everyone out there for listening we appreciate the support leave give us a follow uh and obviously interact with us on social media we like to know that uh you're you know engaged with the show we certainly know that you're out there listening thank you for all the support and we'll come back next week with mercy falls great choice
1: yes thanks again to uh andrew for joining us and and please uh if you're a fan of hockey um his podcast is really good and i'm not just saying that because he was just on ours um no he's he's fantastic
2: and i'm saying that as a as a rangers fan he's he's he he goes into uh, a depth and analysis like no other so it's 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 a pleasure to listen to just as a fan of the sport
1: Yeah, there you go. If a Rangers fan can say it, then it's got to be true.
2: (laughs) Rangers fans wouldn't lie. Have a good one, everyone. We'll catch you next week. Take it easy.
1: All right, take care, buddy.